0: Well, we're going to look at the Bible now. So, I have actually gone and uh, bought new Bibles this week. So, uh, Heather, do you want to hold one up? Look at these. That is an attractive book. And, uh, literally, the first thing I say to Heather in the morning. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, we've got new Bibles. And we wanted to get new Bibles. so We haven't replaced the Bibles in the church for. Um, Uh, uh, years, I mean decades probably, and they uh, were getting a bit worn and a bit uh, tatty and English has changed and so every so often they revise the translation to keep up with the pace of modern English. And uh, we were talking about this the other day and we said, look, we really believe in the Bible as the Word of God, we're going to be thinking about it this morning, so we need to buy new Bibles to show that we put our money where our mouths are. Um, So we've actually bought brand new Bibles. The reason I'm saying that is that if I see you not looking at a Bible, I'm going to wonder why. Okay, I've gone out. I actually carried these Bibles in boxes from my car this morning. It's just ungrateful if you can't be bothered to carry one from the table. So grab a Bible. Um, this one fell on the ground, so it, uh, it's had to be fixed. It's not, one of the new ones. it's not one of the new ones. It's a large print one for blind pew at the front here. Uh, so do grab one. Uh, I've also, and I didn't take this decision lightly, I'm not putting the Bible readings on the screen anymore. Um, that is for a very good reason, for two very good reasons. One is time. It takes quite a lot of time during the week to do that. But also, I want us to get used to looking at a Bible. Um, I, want to get, I want us to feel it, to, to, to know it. Maybe it's because I'm a, I'm a geek. I'm a book geek. I get that. One of the great pleasures of my life is walking into the library in Lincoln's Inn and smelling the books. Uh, if you find me there uh, late at night when I was a young barrister, I would occasionally look around, check no one was there, and pick up a case report from the 19th century and sniff it. Okay, I love books, right? They're amazing, but also, I genuinely believe that we build relationships with books, that you get to know them, that you get to feel them. There's been loads of times where someone said to me, "Um, uh, what does that Bible verse say? And I can't remember exactly what it says, but I said, I know it's in this area, and I actually can remember where it is on the page, because I've been using the same Bible for so long. Uh, Heather now has my, my old Bible that I had when I was a kid. That I had all the way through into my twenties, uh, with the spine done up with duct tape, and uh, I can look at it, and there are pages where the paper shrunk slightly, and I can tell you where I was. It's actually in Southern Italy, meditating on a passage of the scriptures when I was on holiday with my friends after um, my first year exams at university. And I can, I, I, I open this book now, and I can't carry it around; it's too fragile. But I open this book now and I feel the pages and I think, oh, I was there with God at that moment in time. And the book has become a source of grace to me, the physical book. So I do want to encourage you to to get, um, you know, if you use the Bible app on your phone, then that's great. I do want to encourage you to get a book. Build a relationship with a book. That's nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but um, I just really love it. If I find you sniffing the books, and in the current circumstances, I'm going to have to disinfect them, so um, please don't do that, uh, however much you might like it. Okay, I, um, for those who've not been here for uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been on sabbatical. Not for two weeks, that would be a, the shortest sabbatical in the world. Um, I was on sabbatical for January and February this year, and coming back from sabbatical... I am sharing some of what i 've been reflecting on, some of what I think God has been saying to me for me, but also I think for us and actually, I came back from sabbatical unusually for me i 'm not really a vision guy um, i 'm I'm, I'm not a, a great manager, uh, but I, I came back with a very clear sense of what I think God is saying to us and the four core values that I think He wants to, us to have and so just recapping, basically, what's been said in the last couple of week, weeks. And these, these are four core values that I'm going to be setting out over this month and next month. I think what I want, and I believe God wants, to really drive us as Christians and drive us as a church. And the first I talked about last week was being courageous in mission. Being courageous in mission, being brave, being risky. And uh, to put it another way we want to take hold of those Bible verses that say, fear not. And we spent last week thinking about that, thinking about how Jesus tells this story of a master, a rich master who gets, uh, has millions of pounds and he gives his servants hundreds of thousands of pounds and says to them, go away and deal with it however you want. And then he comes back and he rewards the ones who took a risk. And said, you know what, I'm ambitious for the kingdom of God. I can see those who are in need of food, and I'm going to feed them. I can see those who are lacking hope and laboring under guilt and fear, and I know Jesus can set them free, so I'm going to talk about Jesus with them. I can see those who are suffering under injustice, and I'm going to stand up for them, even if it hurts me, being brave, fearing not. Taking risks, being courageous for the kingdom of God. And, and I put that one first because I think it drives everything else. The other three values that we're going to talk about, not today but over the next few weeks, are not, um, are, are ways of working that out. And that's true of what we're talking about today. So the second core value that I think God wants to be a core value of this church and and something to build our lives on is being Bible-saturated. Bible-saturated. Why? Well, I'm going to explain something of, of what God says about this book. And I want to acknowledge at this moment that it's a slightly old-fashioned thing to say. The Bible has gone out of fashion a little bit, and then it comes back in kind of hipster circles. But I really mean it. I really mean it. I really mean that I think if we as a church are going to have a future, and if this village is going to find the hope that it needs to combat fear and despair and darkness and oppression, there has got to be people who are full of the Bible. And we have to be people who are full of the Bible. What does this relate to being courageous in mission? Well, the Bible is what makes us brave. That's why it comes next. How can we be brave in the face of uh, challenges, of pain, of financial insecurity, of pandemics? We know the word of God. We know that what God has said. The Bible is how you become brave in the face of mission. I, I'm not going to say who it was who sent these messages to me, but I have a, a WhatsApp group that I send out Bible readings every day and prayers and uh, it's designed to be read in five to 10 minutes and it will set you up for the day and give us a chance to spend a bit of time with God in the morning, right? Uh, I basically designed it so you could read it as the kettle is boiling and then pray it through as the, and ponder it as you're making the kids breakfast. That's the, that's the kind of uh, big idea. Five to 10 minutes of Bible readings and prayers. And, and to that group yesterday, I was so concerned by, by the fear that I saw in, the, in, in my friends and in the world around me that I thought, well, i was just going to send you out four readings from the scriptures about what Jesus says about fear, about what Jesus says about fear. And I did that, and someone messaged me back later in the day and said, thank you so much. <laughs> Actually, I found it's calmed me down. I I've, I've found peace in it. I found security in it. And that's what the Bible does for us. It makes us courageous. It teaches us to fear not. It changes the way we see it. Um, So we're going to do this talk slightly differently. Normally, I would read uh, lots of passages from the Bible at the beginning and then explain one of them. I'm not going to do that today. We're actually going to read different bits of the Bible as we go through. Um, So you need to keep your Bible with us. with you. Now here is my lunchtime summary. Now, never let it be said that I do not take feedback. We had a deacons meeting, and someone said, what we need, Phil, is a summary of the summary. That the lunchtime summary is too long to remember for lunchtimes. Uh, And uh, I was sitting there saying, I said at the beginning of the meeting, I'm very secure, I can take any feedback. And this feedback came in, fine. So I have a headline summary, and then a subtext summary. A sub-summary. So here's your headline summary. Okay, if you can only remember one sentence, I'm trying to get down to three words, but I couldn't quite do it. The Bible should be at the heart of our lives. If you want a really, really big picture idea of what we're talking about today, the Bible should be at the heart of our lives. So when you go home, and a partner or a child or someone who's sick says to you, "What did you uh, read in today at church? What was Phil talking about?" Say the Bible should be at the heart of our lives. What I'm going to say in a bit more detail is that the Bible is God's word. It's God's spoken word to us, and he uses it to feed us, to defend us, and to change us. The Bible is God's word to us, and he uses it to feed us, to defend us, and to change us. So we're going to, we're going to read the Bible together. One of the things about being a dad is that you end up with random stuff in your pockets. I've just found a little screwdriver. I'm just going to put that on one side. Um... <laughs> I think it's from a scale electric set. Okay, I'm gonna leave that on the screen, just summarising what we're doing. So first of all, I want us to read from Second Timothy. This is Paul's letter to his colleague Timothy, his apprentice. He wrote two letters that we have here. And we're going for chapter three. And verse seventeen. If you are using one of the new Bibles, then it's on page one one nine six. I'm going to read from verse fourteen, page one one nine six, 2 Timothy chapter three, verse fourteen. And this is St. Paul speaking to a guy who's training to plant and lead churches. Says, "But as for you, Timothy." Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. So what, how do we understand what the Bible is? The Bible is an extraordinary human book. It's an extraordinary human book. It is actually 66 books. If you know all of this, bear with me. But for those who are coming to the Bible new or without the kind of background in, in it, it's actually 66 books. Bible means library. Um, we still get, they have that word bibliophile, you might think, for someone who loves books. Um, it's, a, it's an, in French, bibliothèque is library. Uh, so you get the sense of how, where the word comes from. It's a library of books, 66, words, 66 books. Written over a period of a thousand years. Sometimes it's a little difficult to place them exactly because they're obviously edited at different times, but at least a thousand years, probably more. Contains some of the most extraordinary books of literature and poetry of all time. Uh, along with Shakespeare, the Bible provides the majority of modern English idioms. If you want to know where you the words that you speak every day come from, if you're uh, an English speaker, then uh, the chances are it's either Shakespeare or the Bible. Well, actually, one came up in my Bible reading with the boys this morning. I was reading to them from Dan, Book of Daniel, and uh, it was uh, the story of Nebuchadnezzar who has this dream of a great statue, and they get bound down to the end of the statue, and the statue has uh, iron mixed with clay as its feet. And you will still read that in newspapers today, particularly in football. If you find a great football team that, that suddenly has a defensive weakness exploited, the person will say they have feet of clay. It means that they were very impressive, but there was a weakness. Actually, it's from the book of Daniel. I, I imagine nobody knows that who's saying it normally, but feet of clay from the book of Daniel. There's, there's literally thousands of these. Its vision and teaching make it beyond argument the most influential book ever written. I I don't think I know any serious scholar who would contend that there was another book that comes even close to the influence of the Bible on world history. The most recent figures for Bibles sold are from 1995, so this is 25 years old, bear in mind, at that stage 5 billion Bibles have been sold worldwide. I imagine in the 25 years since, you could probably add another couple of billion onto that. It's sold in its billions, to the point where it has to be excluded from bestseller lists because it's not fair. But it's more than a great piece of human literature. These are the types of claim that get the Bible put on the English literature syllabus at the University of Cambridge. If you go to the University of Cambridge and study English literature, you will study the Bible. Why? Because of its claims as a great human book. But actually, we don't just believe that the Bible is a great human book. I want to suggest that the reason why it's had the impact it's had and the influence it's had and has changed so many lives is because of what Paul says to Timothy. The Bible is god breathed. It's God's book as much as it's the human's book. And I'll give you an illustration of this. I, I forgot to bring it, but I, I often think of my trombone. If, you, um, if you've ever heard me play, uh, it's not a great uh, occurrence, but it, it illustrates this point quite neatly. I blow through the trombone and at the other end comes a noise. I took it in to do an assembly at Abigail School this week and uh, about creativity and i was talking to them about how god is creative and we're made to be creative and i was blowing into this trombone and i'd figured out let it go on the trombone before i went i thought this is gonna i'm gonna be i'm gonna be in here with all the six-year-old girls and uh so i started to play this play this out and you can see them all giggling it's like i wonder if he knows it's let it go you know because obviously an adult i'm an idiot um And uh, I'm blowing through this, and you can look at that in two ways. You can say, what's making the noise? Well, obviously, the trombone is making the noise. The noise is made by the trombone. It's a distinctively trombone noise. I actually have at home a vuvuzela. Uh, For those of you who remember the South African World Cup, they're the things that sound like, I can see my brother nodding, sound like a horde of hornets chasing after the players in stadiums, right? I have a vuvuzela, and uh, I have an E-flat horn, a tiny little horn like this. And I'm going to blow through each one of those and I will blow in the same way and a different noise will come out, right? So you say, well, what makes the music? What makes the music is the instrument. But then it's equally true that what makes the music is me. The music is Phil breathed. Literally, I breathe into them and they produce the sound. And the sound changes. It changes on the basis of which instrument I'm blowing through. They don't sound the same because the same person's blowing them. But they, have, they are their own, uh, their own sound, and yet there's one man who breathes through each and produces the music. And Paul, Paul uses that metaphor, that picture, to say, look, the scripture is written by human beings. right? That's why it sounds so different. If you read the book of Isaiah, it sounds so different from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Isaiah had wildly different personalities and concerns and language. But Paul is saying it's like you've got one is the E-flat horn and one is the trombone. And it's the same God who blows through both of them. And it's the God blowing through them that makes them important. It means that the Bible, when we come to it, is not simply human words. There are great works of wisdom that are not Christian at all, right? There are, there's wisdom. I don't want to upset you or offend you. There's wisdom in other religious traditions. They have, some, they have something of the knowledge of God about them in the sense that they're human beings. They understand the world around them. Paul says this in Romans 1. When Paul goes to Athens, he quotes a, a Greek poet and says, in him we live and move and have our being. There's wisdom in other traditions, but they're not God-breathed in the same way the scripture is. They're not God's word to us. There's wisdom in non-Christian writings in atheist writings. But they're not God-breathed in the same way that the scripture is. They don't have the authority of God behind them. To illustrate this, I, and I, I want to make the point that... Labour this point a little bit because it's at the root of everything else. Um, my great hero is Miles Davis. For those of you who don't know who Miles Davis is, shame on you. Miles Davis was probably the, one of the two or three most influential musicians of the 20th century. He's a great jazz trumpeter. Um, and uh, beautiful, beautiful music. I, I used to be um, addicted to Miles when I was a kid. And every time I went into a record shop, just to show my age... I would go into a record shop and I would pick out, I would think, I'm going to go in and buy something different. And my brother used to tease me because he knew that I'd always come out with another Miles Davis CD. I'd be like, how many are you up to now? 16, 17? Miles is wonderful. He blows the trumpet in just in the most extraordinary way. Now, if you gave me Miles' trumpet and I blew it, the, the resulting CD would not be worth a penny. Miles' trumpet is worth something because Miles plays it. In other words, it's the person blowing that's the most important thing. The scripture is valuable because it's God's word. And it has authority because it's God's word. So how does God use this to change us? Well, scripture feeds us. Let's get our Bibles. Turn to Matthew 4. Page 967. Well, find out the Bible is God's word. He uses it to feed us, to nourish our souls. I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 4, right hand column of 967, bottom right hand corner of the page. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, that's another word for the devil, came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's actually quoting from uh, Moses in Deuteronomy. You can find that in Deuteronomy uh, 8 verse uh, 3. So in this story, Satan tries to tempt Jesus into abusing his power by turning stones into bread rather than by fasting. Jesus responds by observing that as important and nourishing as bread is for the body, so scripture is for the soul. That's another way of saying what he's saying. Man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, you think that all you need to do is feed your body. But by every word that comes from God's mouth. No, I tell you that man needs to live by feeding his soul on what God says. As bread is for the body, the most basic food stuff, so scripture is for the soul. Now bread gets a bit of a bad rep now. Uh, You get endless diets which are cutting out bread, isn't it? If you want to get old, as you get older and your metabolism slows down, people keep advising me to cut out bread. In the ancient world, they didn't have that luxury, right? It wasn't as if they were going to get fat by eating too much bread. They needed a basic amount of bread just to survive. That was the most basic food stuff. And Jesus says that as important as the bread is, so is the words that God speaks, If we get regularly into the Bible, read it, pray about it, ponder it, and apply it, then we grow spiritually strong and healthy. If we want as a church to be spiritually strong and healthy, if we want to be a lighthouse, we have to be in the scripture. More than that, it tastes good. Bread tastes amazing. I used to have a baking blog. I used to bake each week and I, would, I was baking my way through uh, Paul Hollywood's How to Bake. I loved it. I was quite good at it. I hold my hands up. It was awesome. And uh, we, uh, I would write this up on a blog. I'd take pictures of it and I'd share them around. And uh, It was great. And at the end of the summer, I'd been doing the 5-2 diet. And uh, at the end of the summer, I thought I'd put on weight. And I went to the doctor, and at the same time I'd been diagnosed with asthma, and I was taking asthma inhalers. I went to the doctor and said, I'm putting on weight. Do you think it's because of the steroids I'm taking in my inhaler? He looked at me and was like, no. Uh, I was like, maybe it's because of all the bread I'm eating. <laughs> and he was like, maybe. Bread tastes amazing. It tastes really good. Baking bread is not a problem. My problem is as soon as I bake it, I want to eat it. Right? The scripture tastes good and brings joy. The more you bake it, the more you eat it, the more it tastes good. It's a source of joy. More than that, if we neglect it and ignore it, then we're starving ourselves. We become weak, easy to beat. Eventually we die. God uses scripture to grow us and nourish us and delight our souls. So that's point one. Point two, God uses the scripture to fight for us, to defend us. So let's read Ephesians. Chapter 6, page 1177. This is St. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. We read from verse 10. It's in the bottom left-hand corner of the page. He says this. Finally... So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Are they the spirit's sword which is the word of God. The scriptures are a sword in the hands of God. The Bible is how God fights for us and how we fight with God. Now, it's important to read that in context. Uh, Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So if I find anybody bashing anybody else with the Bible, I'm going to know you've misunderstood me. I've observed this happening in at least three ways. Three ways that the Bible is how God fights for us and how we fight. One, for spiritual warfare. I'm going to be unashamed about this. There are spiritual forces in this world. They are not all good. A lot of them are bad. And we have to fight them. And the sooner in the West we wake up to that, the sooner we will get out of the mental health and other crises that we are in at the moment. Okay, I speak as someone who has suffered from mental health problems and still suffers from them. There are a mixture of different things. They are a mixture of physical issues, of mental issues that have to be worked through. And I am firmly convinced from my own experience of spiritual issues as well. And actually, if you talk to uh, majority world Christians, uh, very often they will tell you this, exactly the same thing. You guys are so clever, you can't see what's before your own faces. There are times when we have to fight in prayer. We have to fight against evil powers. And we have to fight. And when we do that, we stand on the scriptures. This is what Jesus did. When Satan came to him and tried to persuade him to do the wrong thing, he stood on the scriptures. He said, it is written. It is written this. Do you know what Satan couldn't answer? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. End of story. It is written. The Bible is for fighting cultural pressure. Cultural pressure. Actually, we've seen an example of this this week. What I mean by this is that we are strengthened by being in something eternal, something long-standing and wise. We are not swayed by the currents of, of contemporary thinking. Some things that people think now are brilliant. Some things that we all think now and take them for granted are ridiculous. And in future generations will be seen to be so. I'll give you examples from the past. There was a point at which science, so science moves on. right? You, know, you had a theory that ether existed everywhere and that stuff moved because it was transmitted through ether. It's nonsense. right? Unsurprising, that's how science works. It works by questioning the assumptions of the past and moving on. Morality changes. At the beginning of the first uh, to the 20th century, social Darwinism was all the rage. It was fine to engage in eugenics, to kill those who are weak, and to promote those who are strong, because we want to have a pure race. These ideas captured everyone's mind, and then people turned around and said, do you know what? We thought that for five minutes, and it turns out to be mad. How do we stand against those things? Well, we know something eternal and true. How do you stand on a current in a river? You find a rock and stand on it. If you don't want to get swept away by the river, you find something you can stand on that won't be moved, and you stand on it. And that way you don't get swept away. And it can have tragic consequences when we fail to do this. Cultural pressure leads to people making terrible decisions. I can think of examples from this. The church was pressured to change its position on slavery uh, in the late uh, thousand years into the first, this is the second millennia by people who wanted to legitimise cultural uh, thought. It became fashionable and economically imperative and the modern way for everyone to own slaves, and so they put pressure on the church to change its teaching, and so the church revised its teaching in some parts. An enormous oppression started... And the the, the unravelling of that happened when people like Wilberforce and others got together and read the scriptures and said, you know what, we should never have compromised on this. We should never have compromised on the equal dignity of men and women. We should never have compromised on the equal dignity of races. John Chrysostom knew this in 300 when he was railing against slave owners. Paul was prohibiting slave trading. But we listened to the world around us And we we got ourselves swept away. We should have stood on the rock. We should have stood on the rock. I want to say this to those of us who find ourselves... like, You can have a personality disposition, right? You can either be disposed... I'm not talking about political parties now. But we can be disposed towards being conservative in our thought or being progressive in our thought or liberal in our thought. And actually, you need both of those groups. Okay, In a healthy, thriving society, and a healthy church, you need both of those groups. We, we need people who, who say, hold on a minute, maybe we, people understood something when they've done this away for a long time. And you need people who are willing to challenge stuff and say, do you know what, maybe we need to move on. Maybe we've made a mistake. That is a healthy dynamic. But I do want to say, to, to the prevailing mood of Christian thought in our time, is towards the liberal end of the spectrum. And I want to say, be careful. If you find yourself in that camp, and I'm not, you're welcome in our church, but be careful. Because slavery was a progressive heresy. It was people who said, we need to change to stay with the times who led to the church accepting slavery. And to the conservatives, I need to say, you need to be careful, because the retention of slavery later on, was a conservative heresy. We were not willing to go back to the scriptures and be challenged. Look at the world around us now. We need to be able to be those who can stand in a world that is being swept away by fear and anxiety and say there are things to be anxious about but we don't need to be afraid because the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The scriptures tell us that we have hope in him. How are we going to stay strong? How are we going to fear not? We're going to know the word of God. We're going to tell it to ourselves. If you're suffering from mental illness, it's an interesting insight for you. CBT, who invented CBT? Anybody? Mental health professional? I'll tell you who. Evagrius of Pontifax. He's a fourth century Egyptian monk came up with the practice of counter-statements. He recognized that monks were suffering from depression, what we would now call depression and despondency. And he said, what you need to do is you need to arrest your process of thoughts and divert your thoughts onto something else by citing the word of God to yourself. I can tell you, as somebody who suffers from depression and anxiety, the thing that has helped me more than anything else, I memorized five passages of Scripture that deal with the hope that I have in Christ, and I repeat them to myself every morning. Number one, Psalm 37, verse 4. Uh, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6. Uh, Trust the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I could go on. The word of God is God's sword fighting for us. Fighting our own minds at times. Finally, how does God's word, uh, how does God's word live? Well, it, it changes us. Turn to Hebrews. Hebrews is just before Timothy. I know I'm giving you a workout today. But that's because we've got to be people who know the Bible. Sorry, just after Timothy. You don't get fit by not running, so we're going to run. We're going to look at the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, page 1203. I'll read from verse 12, very bottom right hand corner of the page. Incidentally, if you want a way to start memorizing the Bible, do that. Pick five scriptures you find encouraging and helpful and repeat them every day in the morning for a week. It will take you 25 seconds. And by the end of the week, you will probably be able to repeat them without looking at a text. And then when you find yourself panicking, you will repeat them to yourself. Writer of the, the book of Hebrews says For the word of God is alive, it lives, and it's active, it moves. It is sharper than any two edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. When we come to the Bible prayerfully, it changes us. Even when we don't understand it. If you say, here's a challenge. If you pick up one of the Mark's Gospels from outside and read for five minutes every day of a week, I guarantee you, you will find your attitudes being changed not just in a way that if you read a good book of philosophy, your attitudes might be changed. It starts to change you. I can't explain it. I can't explain it. But it's a bit like, I know that if I'm exhausted and I pick up a Mars bar and I eat it, then somehow I get energy. Now, I've done biology GCSE. A, thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Williams. I know now that it changes into energy and stuff because she's told me that's true, but I don't really get it. I don't really, if I'm honest, I don't really get how eating the Mars bar makes me go faster. I don't get it, right? But I do know that it happens. And and let me promise you this, if if you make the Bible your regular food, it will start to change you. It's not comfortable. Surgery never is. But I desperately want the surgery. I want, him to, I want God to cut out from me the greed. I want him to cut out from me the anger. I want to cut him to cut out from me the, the unnecessary wasting of my life, the, the cowardice. I want him to cut out from me the, the selfishness. I need him to do heart surgery. And the book of Hebrews says the way he does it is through the Bible. Do you want to be different? You're fed up with being full of sin and shame? Then get into the scriptures and God will cut, them, cut that out of your heart. How then do we apply this? Two minutes. According to my timer. Well, I'm going to suggest some applications for us as individuals and as a church. Make the Bible a regular, that's daily, part of your life. Now, I don't want to suggest that you start off doing what I do. I'm going to describe how I engage with the Bible, and I'm going to say, then I'm going to say, don't do what I do. Because, um, frankly... It's a bit like saying, I want to run, and therefore I'm going to copy a, a runner, a professional runner's routine. Okay? I, if you try and do that, you'll stop. So the way that I engage with the Bible is that I memorize by repeating passages to myself in prayer. I have a, I have a set of five that I've written down, and I re, I've repeated them in prayer. I don't repeat them several times each time, but I just say them in the morning, and then I say them the next morning, I say them the next morning, I say them the next morning, eventually I memorize them. So I memorise, I meditate, I pick a passage, a paragraph actually, from uh, a gospel. So this morning was Matthew 26. And I read it to myself. So it said, uh, Jesus before Pilate, here we go. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. And I just sit and I read it. I'm sitting there for 10 minutes now. I just sit and I read it. And I read it once and I pray, Lord, what is it you want to show me about Jesus? And I read it again. And I read it again. And then I pray, Lord, what is it? And I think, it really strikes me that Jesus didn't say anything. I think, well, why is that important? So I said, "Pray, Lord, why is it important that Jesus didn't say anything? And I think, well, it's important that Jesus didn't say anything because I know from reading the Bible elsewhere that Jesus only speaks when God tells him to. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? God obviously had nothing to say to Pilate. Well, you no, know, I go through, and I, about five minutes of this, I'm just pondering Jesus, and I start say, well, what does that mean for me, God? What does it mean for my life? I think, well, I feel challenged this morning by this, that when I'm preparing preaching, when I'm preparing the texts for the church, that I ought to be coming, first of all, and saying to God, what is it you want to say? I shouldn't make plans without asking the Lord first. I'm just giving you an example. I mean, that's not part of the sermon, but that's, I do that for 10 minutes. Then I also read the Bible. So that's called meditating or pondering or Lectio Divina or something. I also read the Bible. So I will literally read three chapters of the Old Testament and one chapter of the New. And I'll go through it in about a year and I'll start again. That's how I engage with the Bible. So I don't don't want you to do that. I want you to pick something manageable for you. That you can do. If you're right at the very beginning of your journey with the Bible, sign up to my WhatsApp group. And you will get a paragraph like that. You've got a little explanation of what's going on. Pilate was the Roman governor Jesus was before him on charges of blasphemy and uh, uh, leading a rebellion. And Jesus says nothing to him. And it's instructive that Jesus says nothing because we know that elsewhere uh, Jesus says he only speaks what God has to say. And then I give you three questions to ponder. So one of them might be, why do you think God had nothing to say to Pilate? One of them might be, uh, when are the times you're tempted to speak without asking God first? And the third would be, what do you think God's saying to you? And then I'll give you a prayer of the side. So sign up for those. If you are doing that already, then start to read systematically. So pick a book, Gospel of Mark, and think I'm going to read one chapter every night for two weeks. I'll finish Mark and then I'll start the next thing. Pick something you can do and do it and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. Read the Bible in community. This is an easy one. You don't know everything, I don't know everything. Other people know stuff, so read the Bible with them. Um, it makes sense. I'm not the wisest person in the world. There's stuff I don't know, stuff I don't see, so I want to hear what you think so that I can pretend that I'm the of it when I meet someone else. Join a life group, in other words. If you're not part of a life group, join a life group. And you have people to pray with as well. And people to share with. People to say, I find that really difficult. And someone says, oh, thank goodness, I thought it was only me. He said, well, should we pray about it? And then as a church, we want the Bible to be at the heart of everything we do. We want the living, active, God-breathed Word of God to be at the centre of our services, our work, and our decision-making. If you come to me and say, Phil, I think we should do X or Y, the first thing I'm going to ask is, what does the Bible say about it? And if you can't tell me, then I'll suggest we look together. And then we do that. And if I come to you with an idea, I want you to ask me, Phil, what does the Bible say about it? We want to be a Bible-saturated people, not because we're backward-looking or traditionalists. We want to be risky, courageous people. We want the Bible to be at the heart of our church because we want the life-giving, devil-defeating, sin-healing power of God to be active in us and through us. The Bible is God's word. He uses it to feed us, defend us, and change us. The Bible should be at the heart of our lives.